We turn then for the preaching of God's Word to 1 Corinthians and chapter 3, looking at verses 5 to 8. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 to 8. Paul is addressing a division that was budding and at work in the life of the Corinthians as they were uh, parting from one another and rallying around different ministers. And this, of course, not the only problem. And so he calls them in verse 3 as yet carnal, because there was envying, strife, and divisions. He identifies this with their saying, I am of Paul, and others I am of Apollos. Uh, we have our text, verses 5-8. to eight. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. These verses before us hold forth a relevant truth especially as we anticipate in the Lord's mercies another minister added and to receive a call in Auburn Opelika. As you're familiar, Presbytery called for a day of fasting to be observed this day in preparation for that upcoming ordination. Now this may strike, especially our age, as strange because it's a happy occasion and a cause of thanksgiving that a minister should be added. So why a day of humiliation? Why a day of fasting and abstaining and humbling ourselves and casting ourselves in the dust and acknowledging our littleness and smallness and all of these things and earnestly beseeching God for glory? Why humiliation when there is upcoming a time of thanksgiving? Well, first and foremost, it is because it is the scriptural pattern. It's the apostolic practice. And so you see this in the book of Acts, that when officers are being added or commissioned to a particular focused ministry, that the church assembled for fasting. So just as two examples, you can see this in the book of Acts in chapter 13. Here, you notice it's the church in Antioch, certain prophets and teachers, verse 1, Barnabas, Simeon, and so on. And it notices that in verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they are abasing themselves with prayer. Notice those are always together where there is true and uh, religious fasting, there is prayer because the abasing of ourselves and the weakening of ourselves is to make us sensitive to our weakness, which then compels us to cry out all the more earnestly to the Lord for His favor and blessing. See the same in Acts 14 and at verse 23. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. 
So you see, it's the apostolic practice. It's the pattern established in the Scriptures that when there is the provision of an officer brand new, as it were, or if it is to the uh, inducting of that officer to a new installment, as in uh, our own day when a pastor may be called to a different congregation. He's not being ordained, but being inducted in that occasion. Both of these are begun with prayer and fasting. Now, our presbytery noted in its communication that this was in order that we might join in prayer for a blessing upon the ordinances of Christ and the labors of His servant. And that helpfully brings this together. That the reason that there's a season of fasting and humiliation is because it is not only an outward, but an inward exercise whereby we are acknowledging, confessing, and pleading, God, there's no hope. There's no hope even in this outward provision. How earnestly we've sought it. There's no hope in this outward provision. How greatly gifted. There's no hope for any spiritual advance or blessing except you bring it forth. It's as the psalmist says, except the Lord do build the house. They that labor do what? They labor in vain. And those who watch the city, except the city keep it, except the Lord keep it, they watch in vain. And this is, of course, what's taking place in humiliation. It's an acknowledgement of a most basic and vital truth that there's no blessing without God's favor. Now you turn to our text, and you'll notice that this isn't talking about a day of fasting or any such thing of that sort, but it is identifying the essence of why we have such a day as this. Because the greatest of ministers, and certainly it would be hard to find a new covenant minister more greatly gifted than Paul, and Apollos himself was tremendously favored. And yet the greatest of them, as Paul himself says in our text, is nothing. They are but ministers, verse 5. By whom? Not because of whom, you'll notice that, but instrumentally, by whom ye believed, and only as the Lord gave to every man. And likewise, as he said, it is God that giveth the increase, so that neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth. I imagine if we had the parallel and mirror of Paul today, we would be struck with great privilege. What a wonder it would be to have such gifted a minister. And indeed, we do have gifted ministers in our own day, and perhaps we listen to them through various means or visit on occasion uh, a conference or a church where they might be preaching or host them ourselves. And we count that a great privilege. And yet Paul's saying, ultimately, if you want to get clear about it, that man is nothing. And there will be no spiritual blessing that comes to anyone by that man except the Lord do add the blessing. And so we wish to have this before us, which will then aid us not only with reference to the ordination upcoming, but also with reference to the work of the preaching ministry every time we're exposed to it, as well as the pastoral ministry more broadly considered 
in visits and discussions and prayer and other such things that would order us rightly to think about the ministry and yet through the ministry to seek the Lord. Well, look with me at three things that we might derive from the text before us. Firstly, the purpose of the ministry. Secondly, the labor of the ministry. And thirdly, the blessing of the ministry. And as we do so, we'll find and see clearly wherein the ministry hope is found. The purpose, the labor, and the blessing. Now, the purpose is implied here in context when it speaks of this image of planting and watering and then this giving of the increase or growth. And so Paul's obviously using an illustration gathered from farming. We plant things, we water them, and they grow. But he's not talking about fields and seeds and other such things. He's talking about souls. And he's talking particularly about souls being given spiritual life. And so this helps us to see what the purpose of the ministry is. The purpose of the ministry is, doubtlessly, you're well aware, has nothing, absolutely nothing, to do with any entertainment. It has absolutely nothing to please the hearer. It has nothing with any of the things which the majority of the world thinks it has to do with today. It's not focused on that. It wasn't commissioned for that. And it's not indeed governed for that purpose. It is rather, as this imagery implies and demonstrates, it is to cultivate faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to gather souls unto the Lord. There are other images Christ Himself uses, of course, as He says to those who were fishermen. He says, follow me and I'll make you what? Fishers of men. This notion of gathering them out and gathering them unto by the gospel net, the Lord God. Well, here is, of course, a different image. The planting and watering. And what is this planting and watering seeking? Well, you'll notice in verse 5, that Paul says that, you know, what is Paul? What is, who is Apollos? They're merely ministers by whom ye believed. And so this aspect of faith is preeminent in the focus of the ministry. And of course, Paul himself will write earlier in at least the canon of Scripture when in Romans chapter 10 he is highlighting the high calling of the gospel ministry. When he says in Romans in chapter 10 and there at verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? And so on to verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So the preaching ministry is particularly purposed for the gathering in of believers. And so this is true, firstly, we can say, by seeking conversions. And so finding those who are dead in their sins and by God's grace through the preaching of Christ being used as an instrument to minister faith, whereby that one would then believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Him. And this, by the way, is not merely exclusive to the open and public outreach to those outside of the church. It is a preeminent focus of the minister within the church. This is something that, unfortunately, today's Reformed 
world has lost sight of. That it's not merely evangelistic outreach that is seeking conversions. It is the evangelistic appeal in the church because within the visible church, there are those who are believers and there are those who aren't believers. And you can see this in none less than Paul's epistle to the second Corinthians in the second epistle when he says that they are ambassadors. He says, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead. Notice what he says. He says, be ye reconciled to God. He doesn't say we're ambassadors going to the world. That's certainly true. But we're ambassadors to you in the church that you would be reconciled to God. And he holds forth Christ who was made to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So preeminent purpose of the Gospel ministry is gathering souls by grace through the proclamation of God's Word. And so whether they are in the visible church or outside of the visible church, the ministry is to pursue this end. Thus Christ was going to His covenant people and He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. The apostles do the same, both within and outside of the church, appealing to people to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. When we get this in our mind, we'll start to see quite clearly how the only hope of the ministry then is God adding His blessing. Because who are they that are being called to believe? Well, you know the Scriptures well enough to assert this from memory. They are those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. They are those who are at enmity with God. Right now, for instance, as an illustration, think of this. Who in the world right now has any expectation of Hamas and Israel sitting down right now in peace? No one. No one does. All of the tragedies that are taking place, all of what's taking place and the loss of life and the deaths that are mounting up are taking place because there are enemies. This is something that we should realize. We stand like that against God by nature. Now, we may be quite civil. We may be quite polished. We may be outwardly religious and respectable and so on. But there is a greater chance by natural ability of the most wicked terrorist sitting down with the one they strike terror against in peace than there is for the most civil and religious and brought up person in the church of naturally, by natural means, being brought to be made the friend of God. It is utterly impossible by man's ability. No amount of learning, no amount of refined rhetoric, no amount of understanding psychology and the way emotions are and wooing and appealing, though all of those things are called for, none of that by itself and in the wielding of man, however gifted and able, is able to bring forth one dead sinner to life. There's much more, of course, than conversion meant when Isaiah sees, or when Ezekiel sees the Valley of Dry Bones, and he's asked, can these bones live? His answer is quite instructive. Thou knowest. He looks to God and says, you're the only one 
who could ever bring it to pass. And so the purpose of the ministry in seeking conversion, notice, not just the change of a mind in some you know, matter of fact, but rather the giving of true and saving faith, whereby one embraces Jesus Christ, who, apart from God's grace, despises Jesus Christ. This, of course, is the goal of the Gospel ministry. Again, it does nothing to deny the appeals and arguments and earnest pleadings and sacrificial living and uh, studying and giving of oneself as Paul did and as all faithful ministers have both before and after. But it is to acknowledge that not one sinner will be converted if it is not by the Lord's gracious operation by the Spirit. Something that we should consider when Christ preached, there was none who preached better. You know, when you think historically, who are the best preachers? We naturally have sort of this approach where we think, well, Spurgeon, of course, Prince of the Preachers. John Knox, you know, he feared no man. He feared nothing, it seemed. You go well before them. You have uh, those in the uh, Middle Ages who were willing to suffer themselves and die. You have the early church, likewise, Chrysostom, Athanasius, Augustine, and countless others, all whose sermons remain, are worthy of our reading, study, and prayerful meditation. And yet for some reason, we tend to leave out the fact that Christ is the best preacher ever. Most faithful, most orthodox, the most understanding, the most insightful. Everything about His words were unable to be improved. There wasn't someone who could have come along and said, I can say it better than you. And yet, think for a moment, when he preached, not everyone was converted. When he contended, not everyone repented. In fact, we see quite the opposite, that many times he preached and multitudes turned aside. Many times he preached and they sought to put him to death. That has nothing in any sense or any degree to diminish the orthodoxy, the love, the zeal, and the earnestness of Christ Jesus. It only displays this fact that the best and the purest preaching will not accomplish the conversion of souls except God by His sovereign grace transforms the soul to embrace that truth. Well, that's not the only purpose of the ministry. It is, of course, a preeminent and ought to be a preeminent focus not only in preaching and prayer and visiting and so on. But within this purpose is likewise the seeking of continued growth. And so it's not as if someone says, well, I've preached and this person's converted. Now the ministry's done. Right? There may be some who, by God's grace, are more focused upon that, who are more uh, used of God for that. And yet, the ministry is given both for the gathering in and the building up of God's people. And so you see this again in one of Paul's epistles, Ephesians in chapter 4. You can gather it from the fact that Paul uses the language, God gave the increase, the growth, the life and the growth. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of uh, the gospel ministry and its extraordinary and ordinary offices from apostles, prophets, and evangelists. Verse 11 as well as pastors and teachers, 
And notice what it is for. For the perfecting, chapter 4, verse 12, of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so on. You'll notice that Paul is not content, and rightly so, merely to think about the ministry's purpose as converting sinners. That's tremendous and is to be prized. But what's being said is Christ has given officers to the church for their ongoing edifying and building up. So children, you can get this sense, of course, perhaps you like Legos or other blocks or you go to a beach and you see sand and you want to build things or dirt and you want to build things. If you get all of those blocks up, perhaps, of Legos and you're looking at them and you start to build, but you only have just perhaps the outline of the four walls that are there, you're not satisfied. There's something in you that says there's more to be done. These other blocks need to be added. We need to think of how we're building it. And certainly the Scriptures use this language quite frequently of the building up of the church. Even the language that we have of an edifice is derived from this word of edifying, building up. And we are Christ's building. Every stone as a believer is a living stone being built in the temple of the living God. And each one is to be matured and strengthened. And this, of course, is a focus of the ministry. And so, of course, this isn't exclusively why, but this is one reason there's catechesis and there is instruction and the preaching is not just exhortation, though a primary focus, but there's doctrine and other such things, corrections of errors and there's visitation and All of these labors, the publishing of books and printing of books and the circulating of Scriptures. Why? Because these are preeminent means whereby the Lord builds up His people. And so, it is both the gathering in of God's people and the building of them up. But, the building of them up is equally dependent upon the Lord's grace. And so, it's interesting how gifted Paul was in the book of Ephesians, for instance, Colossians as well. He identifies, expresses his prayer that those who believed on God, God would continue His work, opening their eyes, that they would better discern and apprehend and enjoy all of the riches that are theirs in Christ Jesus. And of course, one part of the ministry, which is to reprove, it's interesting, isn't it, when Paul says, preach the Word, the first explanatory word he uses is reprove. This reproving is an acknowledgement of straying, an acknowledgement of weakness and sinful distraction. And so the ministry has a purpose to reprove and bring them back. And yet all of us know that words are useful and needed, but they are not effective unless the Lord adds His blessing to it. And so this purpose of gathering and building up is a purpose which requires the Lord's divine grace. Well, second notice, the labor of the ministry. If the purpose is to gather in and to build up, what does the labor look like? Well, Paul uses these two images of planting and watering. 
These are, of course, quite instructive because it has the notion of establishing or initiating the work and the continuation of the work. So some have planted seeds in a, a, a jar and perhaps in their garden, and they don't just plant it and say, now the work is done. Well, the initial work is finished. They've perhaps fertilized it and all of these things, now they've planted it. And what do they do after that? Well, they water it. They don't overwater, they don't underwater, or they learn to avoid those mistakes. But they are careful in providing ongoing care for it. So there is a commencement of this labor, and there is a continuation of this labor. All of this is by the diligent commitment to the ministry of the Word. The farmers have seed and water. Those are the things that they are ordering and organizing. But the minister has the Word and the ordinances. So you can see, as reference was made, Paul summarizes in many ways the whole of the pastoral labor in 1 Timothy and chapter 4. He there says in verses 12 through 16, this labor, and notice how it is a focus upon the Word and personal holiness. So he exhorts Timothy, 1 uh, 1 Timothy 4, at verse 12, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Now pause there for a moment and notice this. Timothy would have been a young minister. And Paul doesn't say in so many ways, you know, don't let people despise you, just put them in their place. That's not his point of let no man despise thy youth. He's saying, let it not happen by being an example. If you're an example, they'll have no ground to despise you. And how is it then that he is to be an example? In these personal graces of speech, of conduct, of love, of inward purity, of faith, of all purity. And then what is the particular means he is to be much in? He's to give attendance. The careful attention to reading. And the word, certainly we would have other places to include the reading of books, but it's the public reading is the notion. The activity of reading and exhorting and doctrine or teaching. So three aspects of a word-centered ministry. This is what you are to give attendance to. So don't neglect the gift given to you that is in thee which was given thee by prophecy, by the laying hand on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. And so this labor was to be a comprehensive labor, even for a young minister. A young minister is to say, well, when I get older, then I'll give myself wholly to these things. He's saying, my calling, for which I am answerable to the king who has commissioned me as an ambassador, my calling is that my life would be ordered by his word, outward and inward. And my word-centered ministry would be uh, uh, focused upon the scriptures, that I would give myself wholly to them, that I would continue 
in them. And so in the second epistle, chapter 4, Peter, or Paul says, preach the Word in season, out of season. And so you can see the whole conduct of the minister is to be one that is a minister of the Word. Personally, as his own life is transformed, and publicly, as he preaches, visits, speaks, and so on, that all of this is related to God's Word. The labor is a labor in the Word of God. This is important because, to borrow the image or to extend the image that Paul uses, when we talk about planting, what's being planted? What's being watered? It's the Word. It's the Word that's being sown. To use the image of Christ, His Word is like seed and it's sown across four soils. And that Word is not just to be sown, planted, but it's to be watered. Now notice an illustration from Paul's personal life and ministry in Acts chapter 20. And you'll see this labor confirmed. So what is it that Paul summarizes his ministry among the Ephesians as consisting of? Well, notice Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 17. He calls the elders of the church, the presbyters of the church, and he's about to leave. And notice it says, When they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mine and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And notice verse 27, he says, I've not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And likewise, in verse 28, he exhorts them, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood, and so on. Notice Paul's local ministry at Ephesus was one of personal godliness. As he says, you know what manner of man I've been with you, what manner I've been with you, how I served you in humility of mine, many tears, temptations, and trials. I was faithful and so on. And you know what I was doing. I kept back nothing. I was laboring to teach you what the whole counsel of God. But it's all as well brought to this focus and summary, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And he did this publicly, as we're gathered publicly, but also in other scenarios, and privately, house to house. The whole of Paul's ministry was one of personal godliness and teaching of God's Word, proclaiming God's Word. And then what does he say to the elders as he leaves? He says, you're to feed the church of God. This is to be your ministry. Now, you don't have an apostolic ministry like I do, 
but you're a minister of the Word. And so this is to be your focus. It is to be a comprehensive, consuming concern of your life that you are giving yourself to the ministry of the Word. This is to mark out what the minister's life is. That it can be said that they are spending and being spent to make Christ known. Such labor. This is all of a sudden what makes sense of Paul saying, I don't count my life dear unto me because I have something more important than my life. The thing that's more important in my life is the ministry that Christ has given to me to disclose and make known His will to others. To gather in sinners and to build them up. Now, both were being done in Ephesus. And as he would go, both would be done as well. But it seemed particularly that it was going that he would then proclaim the truth to the unconverted. Whatever the case, you'll notice that this wasn't a side item. This was not a marginal thing. This was not something that took up you know, one day of the week. It wasn't something that took up a few spare hours of his life. It was his life. It was a consuming identity for him in his calling. This is the labor then of the ministry. You can go back to 1 Timothy 4 and see how Paul's calling Timothy to the same thing. He's saying you're to give yourself mostly to it. No, wholly to it. This is to push out everything else because you're a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important, nothing uh, of equal importance as this calling to preach and make known Christ Jesus. Now brethren, this helps us see the need for the Lord's blessing in a number of ways. Think for a moment how many temptations any Christian faces to compromise the truth. Every Christian is faced with temptation. This is true in a marriage with an unbeliever. It's true with marriage with a believer. It's true with as a believer to parents who are unbelievers, to co-workers who are unbelievers. It's true in all of our capacities that there's a tendency to be tempted to tone down and sort of cool off the things of Christ. Well, brethren, a minister, whatever else he is, is a man. And as a man, he faces the same temptations. And so if ever he should fulfill this labor and give himself in the midst of great disappointments to continually giving himself to the ministry, it will only be as the Lord sustains that man. It will only be as the Lord adds blessing to that man. You think of what Paul speaks of elsewhere, of the you know, whippings that he had and the uh, stonings that he had and the being cast into the sea that he had. All of these troubles and false accusations. And we rightly say it required much grace for that. That he would continue. But brethren, it requires much grace for any minister to continue faithful to the ministry. And if ever we should have ministers added, it requires grace. If ever the minister should continue faithful, it requires the Lord's grace. But this leads us then to the third and the most focused part of Paul's uh, uh, the passage before us, namely the blessing of the ministry. Not merely 
the blessing of the minister, but rather the blessing of the ministry. His ministry. How is it that blessing comes? One thing we can say that Paul identifies and expresses without any confusion. The blessing to the ministry does not come by virtue of the man. It does not come by virtue of the giftedness. It does not come by virtue of the diligence. Now, none of this is to imply, and surely we should be careful not to infer, that this justifies a lazy ministry or a compromised ministry or a ministry that isn't learning. We remember the exhortation that Paul gave to Timothy, give thyself wholly to them. We see the example of Paul himself and the diligence that he exhibited. We see Christ Jesus. If ever there was one who in our minds would not require diligence, it was Christ. He's the Son of God incarnate. And yet no one outdid Christ in self-denial, in fastings and prayers, and in earnest diligence, speaking a word in season at all times. He was most diligent. And yet the effective ministry, if we can call it that, the actual gathering in of converts and the actual sanctifying of them, the building of them up, has nothing to do in and of itself by the man who's preaching. What does Paul say? I've planted an Apollos watered. There's the minister. What are they though? They're only ministers. So that neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth. Now, the visible thing, the tangible thing we see in the ministry is the minister. And this can then have this false association in our mind to think that that minister now is the cause and source of my soul's blessing. But Paul's saying, no, we're just instruments. It's not by virtue of me. It's rather exclusively by the divine and sovereign effectual blessing of God's grace. Imagine that most of you have given some attention to the things going on between the Gaza Strip and Israel and elsewhere there, one of the things that Israel determined to do was to shut off all electricity and water to the Gaza Strip. Now think of what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the wires weren't still there. It doesn't mean that the plumbing was not still there, whatever way they get the water there. It means that the effective provision is now stopped. The wires are still strung about, a part, of course, from those that have been destroyed. The piping is still present, but what's absent? There's no electricity going along the wires. There's no water going through the piping. The thing that is most needed has been withheld. And so, in vain, would anyone go up to a faucet and hold their cup there? Because there's no source providing now water through the piping. In vain would someone seek to turn on the electricity because it's been shut off. The wiring is there, perhaps intact, but what's withheld is the vital part, the needed part. This is an effective way of thinking of the ministry. The ministry is like the wiring that the Lord has established. The ministry is like the piping which the Lord has established. And yet the piping without the water, the wire without the electricity, 
is ineffective to the desired outcome. It is needed, desperately, absolutely needed. If ever there should be life spiritually and nurture spiritually, that the Lord would provide the vital part. Now in His great wisdom and providence, He has determined to use these means. That's why Paul says, what is Paul? What is Apollos? Who are they? They are ministers by whom ye believe. They are the uh, uh, instruments, just as the wire is the instrument of bringing the electricity and the pipe is the instruments of conveying the water. So the minister is the instrument that God has ordained. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? Of course, in our age, the evangelical church has many answers to that all of which fall infinitely short of the biblical answer. Paul's seeing something. He's teaching something. And he's giving it to us by divine authority. The ministry of the preacher is the preeminent means of conveying and confirming faith. And so we attend upon that. We wait upon that. But we don't think to ourselves, now the blessing's here. This is true of the most godly and gifted and gracious of men. Notice again, Paul is saying this of himself. I am nothing. Apollos is nothing. We have it in our own heritage. It's been shared before. David Dixon, who himself was a famed minister of the Word. He was well known for his pastoral ability, waited upon. People would travel miles with their cases of conscience to have him, as it were, open God's Word and uh, bring the, the, the covenant of grace and application to them. And here in the 1600s, at the Second Reformation, a time that we look back to and say there is a high-water mark of doctrine, practice, worship, government, and so on. And he was a leader of that season. So much so that he had frequent requests to go and preach in the most influential of pulpits. And when one such occasion came to him, and he walks to the pulpit, and hundreds of people gathered there to, there to look upon this famed man, who many in that congregation had visited in Irvine and had been blessed by his ministry there. And now he stutters and stumbles and can't speak. And he says unto the people, well, you have a silent sermon today because the Lord has withdrawn my ability to speak, perhaps it's because you've looked too much upon the means instead of upon the God who blesses the means. Dismiss the people with a benediction. What an embarrassing thing perhaps it must have been a temptation to face, and yet what a powerful lesson it was for the people, for Dixon, for us today that however gifted and godly and gracious and countenanced by God such ministries may be, yet the only reason they're blessed is because God adds His blessing. He was tremendously trained. In fact, he was a doctor of theology and himself one who trained some of the best preachers. It's been said that over three-fourths of Scotland's ministry in the Second Reformation were in direct ways influenced by David Dixon's direct teaching as a professor of theology, both at Glasgow first and then in Edinburgh. And a famed man, a gifted man, man to whom many would trace their conversion 
and sanctification. And yet the Lord, as it were, shut it down in order for people to see it's not Dixon. It's God. It's God who gives the blessing. It's God's blessing we need. And that's what Paul is rebuking the people of Corinth about. Why are you saying, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Paul, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ? He's saying you've missed the fundamental point. Surely it may be that the Lord has used that one in your life to convert you or to build you up. And maybe it is in the Lord's great providence you find great help in their ministry and there's a way in which the Lord peculiarly blesses that ministry to you in ways that He doesn't bless others. But let's be clear about it. That's only because God is ordering it that way. It is God who's giving the blessing. It is God's blessing alone who brings forth the desired fruit of salvation, both in its initial conversion as well as in its ongoing sanctification. So brethren, as we close, this holds forth instruction to all of us, to ministers, that ministers would not look upon their gifts, their studies, their diligence, as the effective cause of conversion or sanctification. Again, this doesn't mean or excuse them from any diligence in pursuing these things. But at the beginning and throughout and at the end of all such diligence, they're to look to God and say, except you bless, none of this will avail anything. No sinner will be converted. Though I spend uh, wakeful evenings and uh, give myself to the Scriptures and the reading of best books and earnest prayer, praying for each member by name, thinking of their circumstances, visiting them regularly, and so on, and pouring my soul into the preparation of sermons, that minister at the end will have to say, except you bless, it's all for nothing as far as conversions and sanctification goes. And on the opposite, when it is that conversions are multiplied and sinners are converted in mass, and when it is that large portions of God's church are seemingly edified by that minister's labor, at the end of that moment, what is it that the minister has to say? It is only, entirely, comprehensively, because God has sovereignly blessed with His saving grace. This also instructs congregations with ministers that they should not look upon the minister above what he is. They should esteem him highly for their work's sake and attend upon their ministry with prayer and diligence, focus and a readiness to believe that which is proclaimed in accordance to God's Word and to support and countenance and so on all of what is required for the minister. And yet, to do so because of what they are by God's appointment. They are God's steward, God's ambassador. And so the honor they're showing to the ambassador is actually out of a higher honor to God. Their honor is unto God. This is similar, of course, to wives submitting unto their own husbands. And they're embedded in that exhortation as as unto the Lord. 
So the orientation of the wife to the husband is actually giving such honor to the husband preeminently because of her honor to the Lord. And similarly, congregations to their pastors are doing so because of the esteem they have for the Lord whose ambassador the minister is. It's preeminently about Christ. The honor and respect and deference and kindness and all of these things, the prayers even, is preeminently because there is a love to the Lord. It also teaches them to say, when I have received blessing, my first word, my main word, my primary word ought to be, thanks be unto God. God be praised. And whereas surely there may need to be expressions of gratitude and encouragement to the minister, whether as a pastor or a visiting one, yet that is far inferior to the expression of gratitude publicly given to the Lord. I thank the Lord that He's given this to me. I praise God that He's opened my ears. I praise the Lord that He's used such a mean and lowly instrument in order to minister unto my soul. The congregation thus realizes I would not be converted by this man's ministry or edified by that man's ministry or by this author or whatever else it may be if the Lord wasn't working in and through it by His grace. It also teaches us finally how to approach ordinations. And on other occasions, inductions, though both will be taking place on Friday. We ought with tremendous gratitude say, Lord, thank You for, as it were, bringing the wire to this place. Thank You for bringing the piping to this place. And yet, Lord, we realize we pass by neighborhoods that have walls built up, wiring is there, plumbing you can see, but there's nothing connected. Don't let that happen here. Father, as You've appointed this one to preach and labor, to pastor and shepherd, to pray, to deny himself, and so on, bless that Your presence would be with him and would indeed bless his labor. For Father, we rejoice that You've extended this provision of Your kingdom here, but we still stand in need of the King Himself ministering through this One. And so as we rejoice on this occasion, we commit ourselves day after day after day, not only thanking You for this, but imploring You for the blessing that God would Himself give the increase. Would you stand with me for prayer?